Liberty lockdown, please scan your barcode Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne If you ride with the thought, you've always got a home The virus you're scared of will come and it'll go The government knows this, don't get treated like a hoe Let's get into the show Welcome everybody to another episode of Liberty Lockdown. This is Clint here, aka Liberty Lockpot on Twitter. It is September 25th, 2020, the year that never, ever ends. Ever. Never. I watched uh, a two-part documentary series on HBO called Agents of Chaos. It's a uh, documentary by Alex Gibney, who... I'm not super familiar with, but I looked up their IMDb to see if they're just like pure propagandists or not. I don't think that they are per se. Uh, however, this piece I was not impressed with. It it seems to try and draw connections to, I mean, obviously, Agents of Chaos. It's a deep dive into the election manipulation or attempted election manipulation by the Russians in the 2016 election. And they come away you know, painting a picture that's basically confirming the deep state narrative that Trump had no chance without Russian involvement. Keeping in mind that there was 100 online trolls. That was the primary source of the misinformation campaigns. And to believe that our government doesn't have an offsetting greater magnitude of online trolls to direct the country in whatever way they see fit, I think is laughable. So the fact that they never give any consideration of the fact that maybe, just maybe, the American government is doing the same thing. They do it to other countries. Do you honestly think, given the amount of power and money that circulates through this system, that they wouldn't do it to us too? Are we that special, folks? Do we still believe that the U.S. government works for us, or do they work for themselves? If you have the answer to that, I think you have the answer to what I'm about to say. Clearly, yes, Russia did try to interfere with the election a little bit. So did other countries. So did China, for that matter. But they focus on Russia, and they use that as an excuse to... Delegitimize Trump. Clear as day. And I'm no fan of Trump. This is not me running defense for him. It's just the truth. They wanted Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton is an operative of everything that this current iteration of the government stands for. She had been in power for 20 plus years. I think almost 30. And she was going to continue the system that they were comfortable with. Why would they not want her? Of course they did. So they come up with the conclusion that this outsider who barely, you know, squeaks by and wins the election is a Russian spy. No, he wasn't. Trump, in my opinion, was an opportunistic businessman who kind of lucked his way into it, if I'm being totally honest. But I think he won fairly legitimately. I mean, it was close enough that you could, there will always be some doubt as to whether or not he would have won the election regardless. But some of the allegations of this documentary were mind-blowing. They said that the Russians had so successfully hacked our election system that they had the capacity to change the results, but they, in real time, were able to see 
the results of the election, realize Trump was winning and not manipulate the results. If you buy that, that keep in mind that we don't have a centralized election system. Each election is like a state ran operation. And this former spook is on this documentary saying that the Russians had so successfully infiltrated all of the key voting booths of all of the key states in the election, and they had real-time reporting that they could have changed the actual result, but they didn't do it because their propaganda had been so successful they didn't need to. I got a bridge to sell you. Goes nowhere. Pretty penny, though. I, I can't believe that allegation. It is unbelievable. <laughs> that they... Oh, come on. Just come on. During this investigation, they went after all of his cabinet, and that included some of his nominees, including General Flynn. And today, Kimberly Strassel came out and reported that uh, breaking per CBS Heritage and extraordinary uh, Christopher Steele's main source for the dossier, he was the subject of a nearly two-year-long FBI counter-intel investigation from 2009 to, to 2011 under suspicion of being a Russian spy and a, quote, threat to national security, end quote. Early in the Obama admin, Subsource reportedly attempted to recruit two individuals connected to an influential foreign policy advisor to Obama, said if they got jobs in the administration and access to classified information, he could help them, quote, make a little extra money, end quote. FBI says he had previous contact with the Russian embassy and Russian intelligence officers. Thanks to Paul Sperry, we know the name of this Subsource and that he, for a period at the time, or at this time at Brookings, which is an institute for uh, kind of like a think tank. Oh, yeah, Democratic think tank. Um, but here's the real kicker. Per these documents out from Lindsey Graham, the FBI knew about this prior confidential informant investigation into the source in December of 2016. It knew it was relying on information from a suspected Russian spy. The same FBI said to be cons uh, concerned about Russian interference in election was using information from a suspected Russian spy to probe a presidential campaign. The same FBI claiming Carter Page is a Russian agent was making that case based on info from a suspected Russia agent. Most importantly, it never told the FISA court about the CIA investigation, CIA being confidential informant. It withheld that information and continued re-upping its applications to surveil Page and the campaign. It vouched for information supplied by a suspected Russian agent agent. The name of this subsource and the realization of the FBI's prior suspicions should have ended the entire probe. Instead, the FBI doubled down, hid things from the court, kept going. This, is a, this again raises urgent need to know who knew what and when. And people wonder why Durham is looking into all this. Also, extra credit question, wasn't it Mueller's job to find sources of Russian disinformation? How do you miss the guy potentially feeding it directly to the FBI? Good questions, Kim. So what that means is that the case against General Flynn is fraudulent. The only thing they got him on was dates that he had wrong. But he, so he admitted to lying, but in fact, it was, they were benign lies. But he was scared enough that he copped a plea, and now he has tried to retract it because he realizes that he was entrapped. While, while investigating a current presidential election, they utilized... A Russian, a known Russian spy to try and drum up information about Trump being a Russian operative for Russian spies. 
if you don't see right away the problem there, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, the case against him was so barren. I mean, he did have business opportunities in Russia. That, as far as I can tell, that was the whole case against Trump. He had contacts in Russia. He had been attempting to build a hotel in Moscow or license one because he doesn't really build things. And because he had a few scumbags in his cabinet like Paul Manafort, who is a legitimate dirtbag and had shady dealings with Ukraine, they took the opportunity, directed by Obama, to frame a three-star general, General Flynn. I don't know if that's treason by, by the technical definition, but it's damn close. They used the very thing they were guilty of to pursue an outsider trying to become the president of the United States. That's just the truth. That's what happened. Now, does that make Trump clean? Does it make him a good guy? No, and no. Trump almost certainly has mob ties. You don't build some of the biggest properties in New York City without having some involvement with the mafia. So this is not saying that Trump's an angel. Far from it. But the case against him in terms of Russian collusion, which I've been talking about even on my prior podcast before Liberty Lockdown, I've been saying this for years. For years. And the only thing it took from me is to follow the evidence as it developed. Not to listen to the headlines, not to listen to the fear-mongering, not to listen to the daily news break, you know, bar, not bar, uh, Mueller opens investigation into XYZ. They, they ran those headlines day after day, building up the furor in the public to think that perhaps he was a Russian plant. It's just patently untrue, through and through. So I think that this closes the chapter, as far as I'm concerned, on the Russian collusion issues. That isn't to say that I believe there won't be continued interference in our elections. I think there almost certainly will be, and I think there have been for quite a while. I just don't believe that it'll necessarily be Russia that's the main threat to us. I mean, they they did support Trump over Hillary Clinton, but it just it's natural self-defense. I don't think they cared about Trump one way or the other. They hated Hillary Clinton because she was a warmonger and she used very vitriolic language against Putin and and the Russian people regularly. It makes sense. Any country who wants to survive and prosper when the global economic power and military power of the world is your enemy is going to want to remedy that situation however they can. I'm not saying that it was right for them to try and interfere with our election, but it makes sense. You have to admit that. It makes sense. You would do it. You would do it if you were the leader of another country, especially if you really genuinely believe that you're not an enemy combatant of America, which as far as I've seen from Putin when he talks, it seems as if he doesn't want to be on a war footing with us. Now, that doesn't mean that he's telling the truth. He's a former KGB operative. I'm not naive enough to believe everything he says is the truth, but at least he says nice things about peace. Hillary Clinton didn't, ever. So yeah, they like Trump a little bit more. Boo-hoo. I don't really care. Now, on the other hand, Trump has had a very antagonistic relationship with China. 
So my eyes and my ears will be paying attention to what transpires from China during this election. Doesn't mean that they'll actually do anything. I'm just telling you to keep your eyes open because you never know. And then my another favorite topic of mine is the lockdowns and COVID. Team Fauci went up against Team Paul this week. So Rand Paul had a seven or eight minute cross-examination to Fauci regarding uh, the viability and efficacy of the lockdowns, efficacy of mask mandates, things of that nature. And he presented not unheard of counter science. I, I've, I've read it all, but he pointed out some contradictory scientific papers that I think deserve some serious consideration. Most of them from big reputable organizations. You have uh, epidemiologists from Harvard, Cambridge, Sweden, where they didn't lock down and now they have a whole different source of information from which to draw conclusions and hypothesize on what was the proper path to take. And Rand lays it out for him pretty succinctly, but accusatorily where he's saying, Hey man, you fucking destroyed our economy and I'm not sure you needed to. And Fauci lashes out and says, you know, there's no evidence and I think you're alone in that, Senator, is what he actually specifically says, which was remarkably condescending, um, but neither here nor there. And, you know, Rand is a doctor, by the way, so he's he's close to as reputable on this as Fauci himself. And he uh, he starts bringing up the fact that there's pretty clear evidence that there is uh, cross-reactivity from T-cells and from other uh, coronavirus infections that makes it so that we don't always necessarily have the same negative outcome from a COVID-19 infection across the board. And that evidence is everywhere. It just is. You look, you look state to state, you look country to country, you have very different reactions. A lot of people think that some of the Asian countries that had SARS outbreaks, even though, yes, they do have a, a greater um, aptitude or willingness to mask up, that's just been the Asian culture for a while now. It's not necessarily the reason that they've been more successful. And I think that's a really interesting topic because if the masks aren't the reason and there's a, another reason, it means that not only were the lockdowns improper and unconstitutional and evil and economically backbreaking, but the mask mandates and the mask, you know, the calls for mask use may have been futile. And the CDC has gone back on their uh, warnings that this is airborne to now it's small droplets again. And based off of the results in Sweden, who are now having almost no deaths whatsoever and very few hospitalizations even from COVID, and they never locked down. There is a lot of evidence demonstrating that everything that I wrote to you about three or four months ago is coming true. Just because I was reading some non-mainstream news sources and I was able to kind of connect the dots that this thing wasn't nearly as lethal as we were being told. And Sweden proved it definitively. They didn't lock down and they're doing better than us. So slam dunk as far as I'm concerned. Um, but the point I was making about the other Asian countries is that because they had already dealt with SARS, there's a chance, it's not proven yet, but it's a high likelihood from what I've read that they have a cross reactivity 
with other coronavirus. And in this situation, it appears that that is probably why they weren't hit nearly as hard as us. So all of the uh, you know high praise that Fauci has levied upon Cuomo and other governors that you know were in the worst possible states. I mean, New York had the second worst of any state in the union, second worst outcome in terms of death percentage of any you know country population on earth. And New Jersey was number one. And Fauci has levied praise upon both their governors. I think uh, Murphy might be his name in New Jersey and Cuomo in New York. Just laughably ridiculous. While also chastising states that took la- a more lax approach and yet had far fewer deaths percentage-wise in Florida and Texas. So they tell you to follow the science, but if you do, you can only come to one conclusion, folks. They lied. They either lied or they were wrong, and now they're lying. It's one or the other. Because they, they can't be telling the truth because they were wrong in hindsight. Uh, so if you're going to now defend your position in hindsight... You're lying. I don't know which. I don't know if if this was concocted and that they utilized this as an opportunity to you know enforce the police state and do all sorts of things. I don't know. I'm not going to go down that path because I don't know. But it's one or the other. I almost hope it's the latter. I hope that they didn't know. They made their best guess and they got it wrong. And now they're lying because they're you know technocrats that obviously don't want to take the blame. But I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that's the case. Fauci's got a pretty sketchy history when it comes to the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s. He's got a ton of connections to uh, vaccine manufacturers and medical pharmaceutical companies. Just give it a look. I'm not telling you to believe me. Research it on your own. Decide for yourself. Is Fauci a good, reputable source that should still be advising us as a nation on what we should be doing? I don't think so, personally. Just a quick reminder that Fauci said in, I believe it was April, that he thought that there was a reasonable chance that we would have over 2 million deaths in the United States in 2020 from COVID, even with proper mitigation techniques such as mask use, not including lockdowns. Now they say that we didn't lock down aggressively enough, but guess what? Our death total is around 200,000. And guess what? Globally, not even 1 million people have died from COVID-19 yet. And he said 2 million in the U.S. alone. That alone should be enough to fire him. I don't know how you can possibly trust someone who got it that fucking wrong. I will go back to work and do as I see fit and you can go fuck yourself, good sir. And then on a little lighter note, my good bud from Twitter, Captain Bastiat, uh, C-A-P-N, Bastiat's Law. Give him a follow. He had a really good idea, and I thought I'd talk about it briefly. He, he said that uh, maybe I should talk about what public schools didn't teach you, that they should. So I put together a quick list, and I wanted to go over some of them. I might do full episodes on some of these because I think they're really important. Um, but I just want to give a broad over, overview of the, the areas of weakness in public school, in my viewpoint, versus 
now as a successful business person, you know, what did I get on my own and what did I get from school? And first and foremost, the greatest lacking educational source in school is personal finance. The biggest reason that I've been successful in my adult life is because I was raised by parents who taught me about the value of delayed gratification, investing, compound interest, and just general prudence and uh, conservatism. Not in the you know political sense, but just being a conservative. You know, not spending wantonly. And I got no education about personal finance, including credits, credit scores, um, debt. And that brings me to topic number two, which would be economics, including mortgages and debt use. I can't tell you how advantageous it is if you know how to use debt properly. First and foremost, you don't use debt on assets that don't appreciate. So you don't use debt to buy cars. You might use debt to buy houses. Now, there's a whole secondary topic I won't get into about you know, why houses appreciate in the Federal Reserve and how it it's probably shouldn't be happening. Um, but nonetheless, as the system stands today, there's a real prudent argument to me to be made that the greatest area of lack or need in school systems is economic understanding, including personal finance. And just speaking for me personally, my high credit score and decent enough income to qualify for, you know, prime rate mortgages, prime being the lowest possible rate you can receive, has enabled me to take some swings investment-wise on asset, you know, acquisitions, buying houses, buying investment properties, buying triplex commercial properties, things of that nature, um, and then, you know, carry it at a reasonable expense. Again, thanks to Federal Reserve, not getting into that, but I'm borrowing the money. I'm taking on the risk. I'm also taking on the debt. But because of that leverage, it has allowed me in my 15 years of adult investing experience to accumulate a lot of wealth. And that's a very meaningful thing that got me miles ahead without a lot of heartache, you know, without having to work a nine to five and a job I hate just to get by. So that would be the first thing I would want to teach people personally is about the value of having good credit, um, paying your bills on time, you know, things that if you're raised right, come easily, you know, they come as a given. But for a lot of people whose parents don't do that, which is many, probably most, it's a really important lesson to teach some kids that they might not get at home. So I think that would have the biggest uh, economic ramification. It would also uh, give us a smarter, assuming we maintain a democratic system, which it looks like it's failing, but nonetheless, if we were to have a more highly educated economic understanding amongst our voting populace, they might start to understand the evils of the Federal Reserve, and they might start to understand the evils of tariffs, taxes, things of that nature. They might start to understand how these kind of macroeconomic topics affect them in their real lives, that they limit their job opportunities, that they hurt them. 
They might vote accordingly. You might actually get some pushback against the ever-growing state if you had a population that really deeply understood economics. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that they would be teaching Austrian economics, but honestly, any economic education would probably be better than what we've got right now. And I had an econ class. I had a single semester of it in high school, and I was fortunate enough to have a decent teacher. But I know most people aren't that lucky, and honestly, one semester ain't enough. It should be a huge portion of the curriculum. And by the way, I'm not talking about public school, folks. You guys know I'm, I'm largely in favor of homeschooling your kids. So please, don't write to me. Don't yell at me. I'm not, I'm not advocating for the continuation of public schools. I'm just saying, if we were to change the curriculum, how, how beneficial would that be? So uh, my third topic was the various scholarly takes on history. Not just one, for the love of God. We couldn't agree in real time, watching real videos live a day later of the Kyle Rittenhouse shooting in Wisconsin. We couldn't agree on that. And yet, we only get one take on major historical events. World War II, World War I, Korea, Vietnam, Civil War, American Revolution. Go further back, you know. They, they just give you the government-sponsored take on all of this. And guess what? It's true. The victor writes the history books. We should get some takes from the losers. <laughs> Let's hear the Russian opinion on you know, the causes of World War II. Let's hear the German opinion. There's nothing wrong with hearing dissenting viewpoints, and I think that it's a huge mistake. And in my view, it falls into indoctrination. Really. When you're just getting one take on any topic... It is rife with propaganda. It's rife with misleading the public. And it makes sense. Of course, the public school is going to be prone to indoctrination and prone to making you a patriotic American who pays your taxes and goes to war. I would like to see some countervailing measure to offset that. I'm not asking for a ton, but a little, please. And in that, you might actually get some understanding of the truly terrible nature of war, which for the most part, they don't go over. You know, they talk about the Holocaust. And I remember getting that driven home pretty deeply that how horrible it was what happened to the Jewish people in Germany and, and other countries that they had taken over at that time. Um, and it was, it was awful. But there's a whole other level to war that isn't glorious, that is deeply sad. And I think if we got a more honest retelling of the history of war, we might have a population who isn't so prone to go do it. That would be my top three. Uh, fourth one being civics. I think that, you know, civics is usually like political education. I don't trust the government to teach any of these topics, but I would like to have them teach some alternate political ideologies. Teach them. I mean, they're already teaching them socialism. So how about you throw in free market capitalism, libertarianism, anarcho-capitalism, some of those things. Just give these kids these ideas, allow them to see if they hit home at all. And if they don't, and they end up a commie, well, they probably would have done that anyways. So I would like to see not just a democratic, not just a Republican, not just a socialist education, but one that actually includes alternative 
ideologies. Because if we don't start to do that, if we don't start to open up people's minds when it comes to third-party voting, then truly the duopoly will never end. So that would be my fourth. And then fifth, probably it could be higher on my list, but critical thinking and logic classes would be phenomenal. I took one in college at San Diego State. It was good. It wasn't great, um, but I enjoyed it. I think that just a broader capacity of the public to read news and dissect, identify bias, come up with your own conclusions, just think a little bit more outside the box, which our schools definitely don't do. They are trying to put you in the box and keep you there. And I don't know how you have a school system that teaches you how to think outside the box because of its very nature. However, if we could come up with a curriculum that does that, it would be tremendously beneficial. We need people that go through their lives thinking critically about the information that they receive. And that has been my greatest source of depression over the past six months with the lockdowns is that people have taken uh, appeals to authority and questioned them not at all. They just accept them. They accept that, you know, Fauci's the guy, so we listen to him. I want people to think a little bit more critically. That doesn't mean that you have to mistrust and, you know, immediately discard any political person's opinion. You might want to, but <laughs> you don't have to. It would just be good if everyone thought to themselves instead of, oh, what did he say? Okay, we got to do that. To, oh, what did he say? Why did he say that? And then maybe I'll do that, or maybe I won't. Like, just think about it a little bit. Next one was identifying bias, which I talked about a little bit earlier uh, with various scholarly takes on history. I think that that would be a hugely valuable skill, and that kind of goes into critical thinking. Uh, you also got negotiation skills. I, I personally went to business school for college. I don't think I really learned much about negotiation skills in college, if I'm being honest. I probably learned more about it through board games like Monopoly. Um, and just my general nature. I was very aggressively capitalist as a young kid. So I think that, that would be a good class, though, for people that, that really don't have that from any parent, from any um, classes, to give them some understanding of game theory, things like that. You know, ways to go through life and fend for yourself. Like, we're trying to raise these children to go out and have good lives, productive healthy, good lives. Do you want them to go out there with no capacity to negotiate, to no capacity to think critically and, and try and, you know, counter an offer, things like that. It's like, these are easy tips. I think one semester obviously, or, or honestly would, would probably be enough. So I would throw that in there. Um, practical job skills, instead of teaching them these broad curriculums that are for jobs, for the most part, that won't exist by the time they graduate college, uh, because the job market is evolving so quickly, I would like to see them give some practical job skills, maybe a trade here or there. You know, they, I remember we had a shop class and woodworking class. Uh, so like auto, auto shop, and then woodworking in my high school. And I enjoyed those classes a lot. I mean, I'm not a handy person, so I didn't end up using either of those, but to see what it's all about. And for some of those kids, they went on to have careers in that field. You know, uh, I think that it would make a ton of sense to have like computer programming classes, maybe AI classes, things that allow some of these kids to discover their passion and most importantly, their skill set early on in life 
so that they can focus on it. Give them a give them an advantage in the global workplace because they're not coming out with a bunch of broad skills like rote memorization and things of that nature and some actual utilizable skills. Makes sense, right? Maybe some of them don't go to college because they realize I want to be an auto mechanic or I want to be a computer programmer and I can self-teach this. Save them the tuition. Save them the heartache of going to some liberal arts school and getting a degree that won't get them a job. There are solutions to the student debt crisis and the college crisis as a whole that we can we can address earlier on in life. So let's start there. And then I also, uh, I only went to Montessori when I think I was a, uh, what's it called? Kindergartner. I was like four years old, five years old. And, and then I went to public school after that. But I remember that one year pretty vividly for some reason, because my memory sucks. What makes Montessori so special and what makes it unique is that it caters to the child. It cultivates the child's skills over the curriculum itself. So if the kid comes in and he sucks at math, but he's great at reading or writing or something like that, they give him more reading and writing. They focus on his natural strengths. Everyone has a skill that they excel at. You may not be phenomenal at it, Most people do have one skill that they're really, really good at. And I think it's a huge mistake to broad brush and educate in a way that's one size fits all. Because one size doesn't fit all. Not even fucking close. So let's start to focus a little bit more. And I realize that it it asks more of the teachers. But do we want to produce kids that are good at something? (laughs) Shouldn't that be the goal? Shouldn't we focus on what they're naturally gravitating towards? I think so. And, you know, if they focus on something for a while and then they lose interest and they end up doing something else, you you adjust. Like, that shouldn't be impossible. You should have the kids selecting general topic of some of the classes as they evolve through their school so that they can start to get a focus on something so that they don't get to college like I did and go like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do, you know. Give them a little bit of a, a leg up. And that includes age. Don't cultivate exclusively to age. Don't group all of the seven-year-olds in second grade or first grade or whatever it is. Like if if you have a brilliant seven-year-old who's as smart as some nine-year-olds, those kids should be in the same class together. Yes, there's size differences, but in terms of skills, many children don't evolve at the same rate. And it makes no sense to group them in that manner. So that would be a big advantage because then you get to actually challenge these kids. Don't let them get bored. So much of school is boredom. And I feel like that would alleviate a lot of it because the kids would be challenged. They would be up at their limit. And if you're not at your limit, you're not really growing. So I would like to see a little bit more of that. Some parents might think it's too difficult. They can hold their kid back if they're those type of folks. But for those that want the best for their kid and the biggest challenge and they want them to stay interested and driven, I think that would be a great idea. And the reason I focused on this topic today is because I think that the world, and particularly the United States, needs it desperately. The children that are marching in the streets, to me, look lost. They look as if their guardian abandoned them and they're out there kind of throwing a fit. And I don't mean this across the board. I know many of them are very smart people that are out there doing it for the right reasons, so... I'm not trying to paint with a broad brush, but many of them look hurt. They look damaged, and I think many of them are hurt and they are damaged, but it's not 
because of police brutality. In some ways, it's because of public school brutality. They have been abandoned in their goals and their dreams. They, they were sold a bad bill of goods. They thought that they were on a path to success if they went to college. They had been told it since childhood. They had been told they were special since they were young. They get into the work world with their gender, gender studies degree and they realize quickly the world doesn't pay them for that. They have been educated in things that aren't productive. And that is where the socialism starts to really take hold because they think to themselves, I'm smart. I got great grades in all these classes and I'm not getting paid for this. Now I need the government and I need all the rich sons of bitches to pay off my debt. This is a sick, parasitic, cancerous mindset that no country can succeed long-term operating under. So my list of school reforms, public school, homeschooling, whatever you want to call it, I think would be a good starting place. And I would like for you to comment and send me your ideas if I miss anything because you know, I spent a little time thinking about this, but I'm sure there's other topics that I could throw in there that would be really helpful. Uh, maybe a Ron Paul course, for instance. Just kidding. And I saved the most controversial one for last because it's probably the topic that most of you will be the least familiar with, but it's been so beneficial to me in my adult life that I think it would be wise to at least introduce kids to it, give them one semester of it. I know it's going to sound a little crackpot to some of you that aren't familiar, but I really believe that Given the mental health crisis that we're witnessing, the amount of suicides largely driven by social media pressure, things like that, I really think that a mindfulness or a meditation course would be deeply, deeply beneficial. A class on how to handle your thoughts. A lot of us get no education in this arena whatsoever. And I had to find it as an adult once I was suffering from an anxiety disorder because I was ruminating on thoughts and had no tools, no way to get out of my head for a time. For the longest time, I used exercise to escape because I would get enough endorphins and you know you get the little high from working out and suddenly you're not feeling so overwhelmed by everything that's going on in life. What I found in my adult life was meditation and I don't do it nearly enough, but it has been a lifesaver, truly. And all it really amounts to is lessons on how to follow your breath. It doesn't have to be uh, any sort of religious bent to it, even though you know it's a Buddhist tradition. You don't have to go down that path. You don't have to teach kids about the religious roots of it, but just a slow breathing, following your breath, following your heart, your chest, deep inhale, deep exhale, do it for five, 10 minutes a day. It will allow you to see what your mind is naturally ruminating on and control it a little bit. Control it through release, which is a weird concept, but you will discover that by allowing your mind to think about whatever it wants to after you're in that state, you will continue to not think for a little while. And when you're able to control your thoughts a little bit better, you might be able to stress a little bit less have a little bit less anxiety, a little bit less depression, hopefully decrease suicides, hopefully create a happier, healthier child. And I think that if you give it to them a little bit younger, I mean, I was lucky enough to find it in my late 20s, but had I been given that in elementary school, I can't even imagine how different my life might have been. 
So I think that that would be a worthwhile consideration. I didn't put this one up at the top of the list because I, I realize it's controversial. I realize some people would think it's a total waste of time. Let me tell you, personally, couldn't be more wrong. You couldn't be more wrong if you think that meditation can't help you. If you're out there, I challenge you to give yourself the opportunity to experience it just for a couple weeks. See if you don't notice an improvement in your disposition, an improvement in your quality of clarity, quality of thought, quality of just generalized happiness and contentment. I think it's really beneficial. I think I'll end it there tonight. I really appreciate you guys, um, as always, sharing the podcast when I put it out on Twitter is the best way to grow the show. The second best way, if you appreciate what I do and you've enjoyed this episode, please, please, please leave a five-star review on iTunes and leave your uh, Twitter handle or whatever social media you use, and I will shout it out on the very next show. So you get a little pub, I get a little pub. Sketch my back, I scratch yours. As long as the show keeps growing, I'm going to keep doing it. If you love it, share it. We out.